This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies, and today for Terry Gross. Imagine opening your car door one morning and being greeted by the stench of groceries, including raw chicken and vegetables, that were left in the back seat overnight in sweltering weather. That happens in the opening pages of the new novel by our guest, John Vircher. The main character of his book is a veteran mixed martial arts fighter, and the groceries rotted in the car because the beatings and head trauma Xavier Wallace has suffered over the years left him unable to remember that he'd bought them. Vircher's novel is about the fight game, family, the ravages of dementia, and about race. Xavier is the son of a black mother who'd left the family when he was young, and a white father who was now struggling with Alzheimer's. As the story unfolds, he learns more about his family's past as he struggles to resurrect his fighting career. Like his main character, John Vircher is the son of mixed-race parents, and he trained in mixed martial arts as a young man, though he never fought professionally. Vircher is now a contributing writer for Cognoscenti, WBUR's online idea and opinion site, and NPR has featured his essays on race, identity, and parenting. He's the author of a previous novel titled Three-Fifths. His latest novel is After the Lights Go Out. John Vircher, welcome to Fresh Air. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. I'd like us to begin with a reading. This is from the very beginning of the book when we're learning about this character, Xavier Wallace. Uh, You want to just pick this up for us? Absolutely. The game had passed Xavier Scarecrow Wallace by. Too many young bucks on the come up looking for a stepping stone to the next level. The cage had no place for old toothless lions fighting for their pride. And then, four in a row. No tomato cans either. Championship kickboxers. Jiu-jitsu aces. Each one the next big thing. But none of them had the grind in them. All talent and hormones. Cardio made cowards of them all. Xavier dragged them into deep waters, the championship rounds, where lactic acid torched muscles where deep breaths provided no oxygen, only the desperate need to breathe deeper, faster. Shoulders ached, submissions lacked squeeze, punches lost their snap, kicks sloppy thrown with languid legs, hinging and pivoting at the joints from sheer momentum, break the spirit, and the body follows fast behind. But he'd paid a cost for his time in the deep end, too. Worse than the patchwork remnants of stitches in his forehead, worse than the accumulation of crackling scar tissue above his jagged orbital bones, worse even than the seemingly interminable intensifying headaches, worse than all that was the forgetting. And that is John Vircher reading from his new novel, After the Lights Go Out. So we meet this character, Xavier Wallace, Scarecrow was his nickname, Mm -hmm. uh, who has made a comeback in the fight game and is hoping to get back into it. He'd been suspended for something which eventually emerges as the story unfolds. But we learn about the punishment he's taken. And the symptoms that this guy suffers are vividly described as we move through the book. You want to describe what what he's going through? So he's experiencing short-term memory loss. He's having violent swings in terms of mood. He goes from happy to anxious to angry. And uh, not that we don't all do that in our normal lives, but he's now experiencing this at a, at a very amplified degree. And all of this is creating a great deal of uncertainty in him because he would obviously like for these things to not be occurring, but he's got no other options. He's at a point in his life where fighting is all he has left. And he's hearing things. He's got 
tinnitus, which uh, comes and goes uh, at, at varying degrees, sometimes to a, a maddening extent. But he's also, uh, he's experiencing what I, what I described as a deterioration of his frontal lobe. And so there's a voice talking to him in some sense. It's him, but it's his unfiltered self. And what, what's really happening here is something that happens to a lot of athletes that compete in high-impact sports, mm-hmm. not just mixed martial arts, but certainly football and hockey and boxing. What the CTE, what is that? So the, the, uh, it stands for chronic traumatic encephalopathy. What happens is the, as, the, as impacts occur to the head, the brain essentially slides back and forth in the skull, and as it bounces off the hard surfaces, it creates damage to those areas. Now, you trained in mixed martial arts as a young man. How much of these descriptions come from your experience? How much of it comes from talking to people that you know? So uh, it's a mixed experience. Uh, I always want to make the disclaimer that though I trained, I, I, don't, I never really had uh, the same things at stake that the men and women who compete in this sport professionally or, or even as amateurs hoping to do it professionally. You know, I, I was a tourist uh, is, is how I describe it. But um, being immersed in that world, being around some people that did have those aspirations professionally, you do hear the stories of the headaches uh, and, and the after effects of, of a career that is so physical. But I also, some of the experience about the symptoms themselves come from my working life. Uh, for over a decade, I was a physical therapist. Um, and for a good amount of time, I spent um, time working in sports medicine. So I was working with a number of athletes, including football players uh, and, and people in other contact sports. Um, you've had some experience with mixed martial arts. First of all, for people who aren't familiar with it, just explain a little bit about what mixed martial arts fights are, how they're different from boxing. So you're going to make me the, the expert on mixed martial arts. I'm, nobody hold me to this. But uh, mixed martial arts is, uh, in essence, what it sounds like. It is a, a, a sport that combines numerous martial arts, boxing, wrestling, uh, what is known as Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is a form of fighting on the ground that uh, focuses on submissions, meaning uh, joint locks, uh, chokes, things of that nature. Um, and it takes place in a cage instead of a ring where the, the cage can actually be utilized in much the same way that the ropes can be utilized in a, in a boxing ring. You know, the uh, fighters can, can back off of them if they're on the ground. They can use their feet to change position. Uh, um, but it is a, a multidisciplinary sport. Right. And it's one – boxers wear big, heavy gloves, like 16-ounce gloves maybe or something? 12 ounces, 12 ounce believe, gloves. For, okay. for professional boxers. And mixed martial arts that are much smaller. Four-ounce fingerless gloves. So uh, just enough padding to – sometimes keep them from breaking their hands but the the hands need the fingers need to be free because brazilian jiu-jitsu uh, uh, incorporates a lot of grips now you say that you were a kind of a, a tourist in mixed martial arts mm-hmm. but you were serious enough about this to to get in the cage at least once and in fact <laughs> on youtube i found a grainy video of john Vircher uh. in the cage doing in a match which you prevail in pretty quickly um what does it feel like? You know, I have to say, I, I kind of enjoy boxing, although, I mean, mm-hmm. it's all kind of barbaric. I mean, people beating each other up, but there's some rules to it. If you knock somebody down, it gets to get back up. You mm-hmm. know? Mixed martial arts just seems so brutal to me that you can get on somebody and pound them on the face while they're down. 
Explain the, the appeal of this to us. It's funny. Someone mentioned that to me not too long ago. And I, and I do push back on that a little bit because um, it, particularly there's a section in the novel where I talk about this where uh, because we've applied certain rule sets to some of these sports that somehow they seem less brutal or barbaric. But, you know, when you watch a football game, those gentlemen are experiencing the equivalent of a car crash every down. So I, I don't think it's any more brutal than any other sport. But I think there is something about the idea that you presented that once it goes to the ground, we're so used to boxing where, you know, a referee intervenes and they're allowed to stand up and they get the standing eight count. Um, I think it's just something we have to wrap our minds around. You know, this is this the sport, while it's much more mainstream now, is still kind of in its infancy in terms of being mainstream. So um, so that that that's how I would speak to that point. Right. Um, and, and there are rules. I absolutely. Mean, when you're down, you can't use your elbow to come down on somebody's face. There from, are a, a lot of rules like that. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's from 9 to 12 is how they describe that. You can't come straight down with an elbow. But there are still – elbows are still allowed in, in certain ways. So um, – but yes, there is a rule set. Uh, and for, for – there was a, a period where there was an argument that in some ways mixed martial arts was safer – in terms of brain injury, because a fight doesn't always have to end by a knockout where uh, a submission can occur where someone can tap out and say, I've had enough. Um, so, but as the years go on, it's still quite clear that that head trauma is, is uh, a significant factor. Well, now that we've established that you've been in the ring, people yeah. can find this. You can <laughs> see this John Vercher and your friends are yelling for you. <laughs> what does it feel like? What's, what's the appeal of it? <sighs> what is the appeal? Well, I can tell you as far as what it feels like, it is the one of the most frightening things I've ever done. Um, but it was also, because of that, it was one of the most challenging. And I think because, it, because I was able to be afraid and still do it, uh, it did many things for me personally. It was, it was a, an accomplishment I never thought I would be able to do. Um, I was never much of an athlete uh, growing up. So to, to compete in an endeavor like that and to succeed, and even, even if I had lost, to be there supported by friends and family, to hear, to hear them screaming your name is, is uh, a rush like no other. Yeah, the moment when you stand up with your arms raised. Uh, because, uh, <laughs> I, get, I, can, I get goosebumps sitting here thinking about it, and it was so many years ago. But you weren't tempted to try and make a career of it? I, I think that in the back of my mind – I, when I decided that I would start training and start training that hard and start thinking about competing, I, I thought, sure, maybe. The one thing I did learn about myself is that I didn't have the mental strength to do that for a career. It was uh, – I often defeated myself before I got in the cage. I wasn't one of those guys that walked into the ring or the cage with confidence and said, this fight is mine. I'm going to win this. It was more, I hope I make it out of here. And if I lose, I don't, I didn't expect to win. Um, So what do you make of that? Was, was that because, you know, you weren't as experienced or well-trained or you didn't have the fire? I think it comes from, uh, you know, one of my one of the reasons I was so interested in writing this book and, and focusing it around the idea of uh, mental health was because from an adolescent and well into my adulthood, I grappled with anxiety and depression. And so uh, I think part of what 
accompanies that is that imposter syndrome, right? That voice in, in the back of your head that says, maybe you're not quite good enough. Maybe you don't do these things as well. Um, and so for me, doing these amateur kickboxing and, and the, the one cage competition, to me, those were uh, an attempt to fight back against that voice. Um, and it, and it, and it worked well for me. That's, that's, that's what it did for me. But I knew that I didn't quite have the same fortitude <laughs> to do that professionally, to have it be the only thing I ever do. And we're glad you did because you've got the mental capacity to write this book and talk to us coherently. Um, and your record in the cage is one and oh, right? Undefeated. <laughs> Very good. Uh, this character, Xavier, he trains at a gym in a neighborhood of Philadelphia, which I know because we're in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the trainer is his cousin. Mm -hmm. You know, trainers in boxing movies and stories are colorful people, and this guy is very colorful. Tell <laughs> us about him and tell us about his name. So his name is uh, Shamar Shot Tracy. Uh, the name Shot comes from uh, an uncle of mine. Uh, who I unfortunately never got the pleasure to meet, um, but my father told me many stories about him. And, and I mean, come on, it's just the coolest name, uh, both for a boxing trainer and, and just in general. So uh, I felt it was a, a way to sort of pay tribute to him. But uh, yeah, I, I love sort of that archetype of the of the colorful boxing trainer, but I wanted to take that a step further by making him family because Shot's role to me in this book is a truth teller. You know, he he tells the truth whether you want to hear it or not. And uh, Xavier needs that in his life because Xavier tells a lot of lies to himself. Right. He Shot runs this gym, and and part of it he's turned over to the the gentrifying crowd, and there he has Zumba classes and you know I, I you know cycling things and all that. Mm -hmm. But but he's got a real old classic. Um, ring where he trains people on the heavy bag and all of that. Mm -hmm. And he's given Xavier, our main character, a job there because Xavier was suspended for a year. And I want you to read a, a little bit. I want people to get a sense of some of the dialogue that you write here because I find it so riveting. Um, you want to just set this scene up for this is this is a heart to heart between Shot, the cousin and trainer, and our main character, Xavier. Yeah, so Xavier has come to the gym after discovering uh, a dog in his car that he had forgotten that he had adopted. And as he's explaining to Shot why he's showing up to his gym with this uh, sort of haggard-looking poor pit bull, uh, he's revealing to Shot the struggles that he's been going through with his CTE. He's been keeping them secret as, as best he can. And so to some extent, I think Xavier came to Shot looking for pity. And again, shot in his role as truth teller is not willing to give him that. So, so I'll read from that point. And tell us who st speaks first. Shot is speaking first to Xavier. Excuses is all you got lately, cousin. Xavier sucked his teeth and looked off to the side. Man, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Rolling up in here late like it's your name on the front of this building. Like you don't owe me for giving you this job in the first place. Soon as you got comfortable, you just start coming and going when you please. But you family and I ain't said nothing. Now today, not only is you late again, but you strolling here with some broke down dog like this is one of them restaurants down the street with a water bowl out front. And you got the nerve to come in here and ask me what you should do? Negro, please. Man, what is your problem? Right now, my problem is you coming in here whining because you got some headaches and forgetting stuff. Whining? Did I mumble? Whining. 
acting like you don't know this, as he tapped at his temple, is part of the game. You don't want to fight? Don't fight. That's your call. Oh, okay. Then I'll just open a gym and sell out to all the other gentrifiers in the neighborhood. When you start in the goat yoga classes, shot, I want to make sure I sign up before you run out of spots. <laughs> okay, you got jokes now. You know what else is funny? You not wanting to admit that you're scared of ending up like your pops, drooling and pissing on himself in a home. So you putting it on me to tell you to stop fighting. Well, I'm not doing it. And that's John Vercher reading some dialogue from his novel, After the Lights Go Out. Um, where does this dialogue come from? I mean, not just this scene, but I mean, there's a lot of really rich stuff in the book. How do you do that? I think uh, I, I tend to be an observer. Uh, I love to listen to people speak. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, um, my dad used to just take trips to the local mall and sit and just watch people um, and observe and listen um, for no other reason than it just, uh, I think, a natural curiosity. Um, we also talked about the fact that, that I'm mixed race. And so for me, I don't want to speak for all mixed race people, obviously, because we're not a monolith. But for me, as I was navigating my way through adolescence, um, you know, we're already trying to figure out where we belong, just we as human beings. But when you're mixed race, you're, there's, a, there's an added component to that to find out where you fit in certain, certain aspects of society. And so, uh, you know, the term code switching becomes a part of that. You know, you, you change your dialect to speak when you're with one group and then you do the same for another and another. So uh, I think a lot of the dialogue comes from that experience. Um, you know, I mentioned in the introduction that our character, Xavier, the, the aging martial arts fighter, had left groceries in his car overnight and they had rotted because his, you know, his brain's been damaged. Mm -hmm. um, I left out another piece of that. There was something else in the car. You want to just mention this and <laughs> where this comes from? Yeah, so he finds a dog in the back of his car that he rescued um, as he was visiting his father at the nursing home, uh, a, as, as happens at some nursing homes, sometimes um, rescue centers, adoption centers will bring dogs to, to, uh, for, the, for the residents to spend some time with. Um, and he did so because he was worried about being alone. But because of the trauma to his brain, he forgot the dog was in his car. Um, and I did that not in order to manipulate emotions because I know how, as a dog owner myself, I know how emotional we can get about dogs and about harm coming to them, but I felt it was a poignant and striking way to emphasize how just how bad things had gotten for him. Right, and I will just reassure the audience that the dog is okay. Um, <laughs> does not die, but it was a rough night for the dog and you know he... He urinated and and defecated in the car and and then but but it was the other interesting thing about that is that he was formerly a fighting dog, right? An aging fighter mm -hmm. like Xavier. Yeah, that the the allegory there was very intentional. It's uh, you know even to the point where the the dog had uh, not eaten uh, for a great deal of time when it was found by the rescue. And uh, there's a parallel there in the sort of intense weight cutting that takes place in, in mixed martial arts uh, in order to make a weight class for a fight. Let me reintroduce you. We are speaking with John Vercher. His new novel is After the Lights Go Out. He'll be back to talk more after this short break. 
I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air, and we're speaking with writer John Vircher. His new novel tells the story of a veteran mixed martial arts fighter struggling to revive his career while dealing with personal and family issues that involve racial identity and the effects of dementia. Vircher's book is After the Lights Go Out. Um, a lot of this, this story is about race, and one way we learn about it is about Xavier's father. Mm-hmm. Tell us about him, Sam. So Sam was a, a coach as well as a father for Xavier, and as such, he had a bond with his son that he didn't quite have with his mother. However, uh, as Sam is in the throes of his late-stage Alzheimer's, some of the filters that he may have had in place while married to Xavier's black mother are beginning to fall away in quite dramatic ways. And because Xavier's mother left his family when Xavier was a teenager, Xavier carries a lot of resentment for her. But he's discovering through the fog of his brain trauma that his memories about his mother and why she left, and actually the memories about his father, may not be quite so accurate. Right. So he goes to the nursing home and, you know, his father is, is angry. He's talking about you people, mm-hmm. referring to some of the people who care for him. And then uh, we meet this woman, Mrs. Thomas, who's an administrator at the home, who I bet is like a lot of people you knew in your work as a physical mm-hmm. therapist. Absolutely. Tell us what she tells Xavier about what his father's been doing. <laughs> Mrs. Thomas, she's, she's one of my favorite characters as well. I, I know that sounds weird to say that as, an, as a writer, but she's also a truth teller. She tells Xavier exactly what is happening, is that, is that Sam is uh, using horrific racist language to many of her staff and has become even physically violent at some points in the throes of his dementia. And Xavier refuses to believe it until he gets to see it for himself. Right. Um, you, you know, since race relations and racial identity uh, are so much a part of this book, um, it was also part of your book, a big theme in your first novel, mm-hmm. Three Fifths. Tell us a little bit about your own background and, and you know, kind of what, what, where you live, what kind of neighborhood you have, what your parents were like. So uh, my father's black, my mother's white. You know, I grew up uh, and, and growing up mixed race. While I, I think there were some great benefits to it, there were also some challenges to it. Before navigating those spaces uh, as an adolescent and then even as an adult, um, I found that as I got older as an adult, I was doing more exploring and interrogating identity. Um, you know, one of the things that was interesting for me is that while my, my father continues to wear this very big, proud, natural afro, my hair was not like my father's. My hair was uh, wavy, but, but much more straight. So I had a lot of those, well, what are you anyway questions. And when you get that question asked of you often enough, you start to ask that question of yourself. And like kids at school would ask you kids that. at school, adults, people, people were very comfortable asking that question. It wasn't until I lost my hair and started shaving it myself that both external perceptions of, of what I was changed. And that started to shape sort of my internal perceptions. So both three fifths and after the lights go out are not about answering anything about race. They're, they're asking questions and interrogating selfishly for me, but hopefully also for people who are like me that, that may have those same questions. Right. And I think a lot of people who ask those questions and might want to think a little more deeply about it. How would you answer the question when it was asked to you? 
what are you? Well, at, at first, I, when I was young enough not to really understand the depth of that question, I would tell them. You know, I would say, I'm, you know, my father's black, my mother's white. I got to a point where when I understood sort of the layers to that question, I would say I was a human being. You know, it's, it's not about what I am, it's who I am. Your main character, Xavier, um, he's you know, trying to revive his fight career. His mom, who was black, had left the family years before in circumstances that he kind of resented her for, but that changes as the novel progresses. And his dad is in a nursing home mm-hmm. um, where he's begun to show uh, evidence of very racist thoughts. He's living in his dad's house mm-hmm. in Montgomery County, which is a largely white suburb of Philadelphia. And when he goes there, there's a neighbor, Ray. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of interaction does he have with, with, with Ray? Tell us about Ray. Ray was not a, not a pleasant man to Xavier. He, uh, the minute he saw him in the neighborhood, uh, questioned his presence in the neighborhood. I can tell you that came from a life experience. Well, I was uh, going to ask that. You must, yeah, yeah, yeah. The same thing happened to me in the the in the first week that my wife and I moved into uh, the neighborhood in which we currently live. Some uh, as I was walking my dog down the street, um, someone uh, accosted me about making sure that I picked up after that dog. To which I, of course, I answered that of course I would do that, and then was followed up with, uh, "Do you even live here?" So, uh, uh, yeah, Ray, Ray got a, a special place in the book. Right. Um, and Ray is consistent throughout, <laughs> throughout, yeah. throughout the book. If, if nothing else, he is consistent. Um, uh, Xavier also has an encounter which Ray generates with police officers who mm-hmm. come. Um, Xavier's gone in and, as you mentioned, one of the effects of the brain trauma is mood swings and sometimes rage. And he gotten angry and thrown some stuff around his apartment. Ray calls the police. A couple of police officers show up. They're kind of tensely hovering their hands over their service weapons. Mm-hmm. I mean, it ends without violence. Mm-hmm. Is this the kind of thing you experienced? No, that story I lifted from uh, a, a similar experience of a, of a close friend. Um, you know, when, when he related the story to me, it was, it, it, I mean, it, it raised goosebumps on my arms. And one of the reasons I included it here was because we've seen so much trauma and, and horrible things and the news about George Floyd and, and all of these other instances, too, too many to name and count at this point. Um, but there is still that distance of the screen and the ability to turn it off at some point and, and not empathize in the same way that we do when we're, we're in a book and we're sort of inhabiting this character's life. Let me reintroduce you again. We are speaking with John Vircher. His new novel is After the Lights Go Out. We'll continue our conversation after this short break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Chevrolet. Introducing the 2022 Bolt EUV. Chevy's Kelly Helfrich shares one of the projects her team is working on to make electric vehicle charging more accessible. We've worked with EVgo to install an additional 2,700 fast charging stations by 2025. Their focus has been places near good amenities like coffee and restaurants, and there's a lot of opportunity there just to make it convenient. To learn more about Chevy's commitment to electric vehicles, visit Chevy.com for details. You know, it's interesting that Xavier's trainer is his cousin, mm-hmm. who goes by the nickname Shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
As their dialogue and, and their conversations develop in the book, we learn that Schott tells him that when he was a youngster, when Xavier was a youngster, that Schott would um, kind of have to help him out mm-hmm. because he would get picked on because Xavier was from a mixed race family, was lighter skinned. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, people, guys, some, some people would pick on him because mm-hmm. they thought he wasn't really black or mm-hmm. black enough or tough enough or whatever. And Schott would have to come and help him out. And that's one of the reasons Schott got him into fight games. Mm-hmm. He needed to learn to defend himself. Right. Was any of that based on your own experience? Uh, to some extent. I, you know, it, again, it's the, that the navigating of those spaces can be very challenging. And uh, I was not athletic in school. I was, and I was certainly not a fighter. I was nothing. I was no, no tough kid. Um, so, you know, I didn't have sort of the escape of sports or the community of sports. You know, I, I, I had to find, I found community in different ways through friends that were fans of comic books or, or friends that were fans of books or video games or that kind of thing. So I, yeah, it, it was, uh, I, I, there was a part of me that wished I had that safety net kind of, of, of being in those, of being someone who could be more physical or, or uh, felt like someone that could protect themselves. And, and so it was in high school where I first um, got into Taekwondo and, and really got into martial arts and things like that. But it's still sort of, even though there are other people there, it's still a very individual sport. So it didn't quite have that same sense of community. Um, so yeah, I think that. Did it make you feel more secure in yourself physically, like you could handle yourself if you got into a jam? You know, I thought I thought it would, but it didn't. <laughs> Um, I'm not sure how much you want to say about the mysterious missing black mother in mm-hmm. this story. I mean, she does emerge, mm-hmm. and we learn a lot more about it. Mm-hmm. But I think it's fair to say one of the things we learn is that the racism in Xavier's father, which he exhibits now in an unfiltered way in a nursing home where he yells at the black staff there, that it that it didn't just emerge then. It had been there all along, and it mm-hmm. and it had showed up in some way or another at in the marriage, and I feel like this is in some ways kind of the heart of the story, isn't it? Uh. Yeah, I, you know, we we've I've talked to many people about the idea that that though I have this great love for mixed martial arts, it really was a bridge to tell another story. Um, you know, this this parallel story about dementia in someone younger, dementia in someone older, and and the things that get revealed through that. So Xavier has to kind of, and again, I'll let people read the book and see how this emerges, but he learns a lot more about his mother, and that's really a touching part of the story. But I guess what's what's at work here is how, you know, people can be in, in friendships or even close friendships or even in a marriage with someone mm-hmm. who is from a different background or a different race and – think that they are free of prejudice or people assume that that's the case. But in fact, there are really very deep-seated feelings that emerge. Yeah. I mean, um, did, did you, you know, this may be a complete reach and, and make no sense, but, you know, <laughs> since your parents were mixed race, I wonder if you ever saw any of that or heard of any of that between your parents. Not to the extent that we see here. And, and again, I, I think this is a for me, an, a novel of interrogation. You know, I think there there's still a narrative that that people like to convey that I I have 
I can't be racist. I have black friends. I can't be racist. I'm married to a black person. I, you know, I can't. And, and it, this doesn't obviously is, is not just limited to, to black and white. Um, but, but there are people that will still continue to, to say things like that. And, and I wanted to, uh, I wanted to, to push at that theory and, and question the, the, the truth behind that idea. Um, while at the same time, trying not to wag a finger about it and say, you know, that I have the definitive answers about that, uh, if that, if that makes sense. Right. I mean, it's, it's there in our human relationships. And, you know, the, the thing that's, that's a little hard is that, and in fact, Xavier expresses this when, when the people at the nursing home tell him that his father has been doing and saying racist things about the staff. Mm-hmm. He says, are you kidding? Look at me. Mm-hmm. You think that, this, that my guy was a closet racist and it comes out now that the filter is off. And I think it, it's probably a little hard for us to think, wow, you, you could have married a black woman and still had these really violent, <laughs> violently racist beliefs. Right. Um, did you have a, a, someone in mind for creating Sam or – well, uh, stories, uh, not, not one person, no, but, but multiple stories of, of there's a, a large percentage of black women that work in the skilled nursing, set, nursing setting. And I've heard story upon story of these women taking care of white patients and residents who are arguably in the most vulnerable state of their lives um, and in need of this significant care and yet hurling the most vile and, and uh, venomous things to these people that are to – to these women that are, are caring for them, uh, trying to preserve their dignity while they seem to have no respect for their dignity. Uh, and and I, it, we don't talk about it. Um, it's, it is the, – the, the, those women are un, unsung heroes. And uh, having worked in the healthcare profession – I felt a responsibility to to highlight that story and make that known. There are some short chapters in the book, mm-hmm. which are written in boldface type, mm-hmm. where there's another voice speaking to Xavier about his circumstance in ways that are kind of taunting mm-hmm. him, you know, kind of pointing out truths or at least beliefs that he doesn't want to face. Who is this? What's happening here? Well, it's Xavier, uh, one of the hallmarks of that type of brain trauma is there there is some deterioration of inhibition right the 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 filters that we set up ourselves whether it be the frontal lobe or whatever part of the brain and to me you know when when we've heard some of these awful stories about athletes who have uh either harmed themselves or or taken the ultimate step of of taking their own lives I, I had to wonder about what must have been going on in their minds before those things happened. And it, it made sense to me to imagine that there, there must have been something that almost felt like a disembodied voice that was still them, that was telling them these things that, uh, that were things that thoughts that they may have actually had, but they had pushed down because they weren't the thoughts that they should have. Right. One of the things, and I wrote this down, was when he's – talking to him about the fight game. Um, And he says to Xavier, violence is in our nature, homeboy. Violence builds empires. Violence destroys tyranny. Violence is the only way forward, and it's in our DNA. It's damn sure in yours. Um, He's 
further says that that's why people love this sport because mm-hmm. we're all kind of animals at root. Um, mm-hmm. Is that the rage that comes from brain trauma or is that, I don't know, is that something that makes sense to you in some primal way? It's again one of those things I was interrogating because, uh, and and again I don't he's that that voice is not just referring you know as that passage goes on it's not just referring to mixed martial arts it's re- it's referring to all the sports we watch I mean even even NASCAR I mean what when do people cheer the loudest or when are people on their feet is when they see these horrific crashes so I you know it's not that I have this answer that this is why we watch those things but. I find myself as someone who worked in sports medicine, I, I, I have a love-hate relationship with a lot of sports that I watch. You know, I, I, I love the skill and the artistry and the, and the discipline that it takes to become a professional athlete. But for some of the sports I enjoy, I also know, I see and I know the cost. And so that voice and that passage in particular is, is kind of me interrogating, well, well, if I know how bad it is for them, why do I still watch it and why do I still enjoy it? Um, so that, that really is, is, is what that's about. It's, it's questioning both for myself and maybe raising the question for others about why we, why we have this enjoyment for, for these sports that break people down. You know, since George Floyd, I mean, there's been this movement for social justice and the notion of white privilege Mm -hmm. and the extent to which white people don't think about, um, both the ways that they are historically privileged and, you know, some of their attitudes that they might not be so conscious of are important. Um, this obviously connects to some of the ideas in your books. Again, my my whole goal in writing about these topics is, is to generate conversation because I think conversations are what we're not having enough of. Um, I think when when we decide that we have the answers – is when conversation gets stopped. Selfishly, I write for me first. These questions and conversations are, again, self-interrogation for me. Um, But I know that I'm not the only one that has these questions. And so it's my hope that that by writing to these subjects that others consider these these ideas and and questions and and maybe we, we have a talk about them. Well, John Vircher, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. John Vircher's new novel is After the Lights Go Out. Coming up, critic Nick Kwa looks at three podcasts that take the approach and techniques of reality TV into the audio world. This is Fresh Air. There's no denying that reality television is widely popular and culturally influential, and when it comes to podcasts, that influence is increasingly taking the form of imitation— Podcast critic Nick Kwa looks at the trend of podcasts trying to import the appeal of reality TV. Here's Nick. It's not radical to say that reality television sits at the heart of American culture these days. This doesn't bother me as much as some others. It is what it is. Personally, I'm a huge consumer of reality television. And on my loftier days, I'd even argue that Bravo's Below Deck constitutes high art. Of course... The word reality in reality television is a misnomer. Any realer, and it would be documentary. Instead, what the genre supplies is reality as a manufactured theme park. People placed in situations designed to extract heightened emotions from everyone involved. You get conflict, drama, and some semblance of a narrative arc, however contrived. And if you're really lucky, you also get the sublime, 
a funhouse window into the primordial human experience. The podcast world is abundant with shows about reality television. Most take the form of episode recaps and industry news. My favorite is Juliette Littman's Bachelor Party. Squint hard enough, though, and you'd also notice a mini-trend of podcasts trying to capitalize on reality television's popularity more directly by emulating the genre's conceits, mechanics, and style. Among them is a podcast from earlier this year called This Is Dating, which tries to adapt the reality dating show. The series is created by Magnificent Noise, the studio behind the star psychotherapist Esther Perel's array of popular therapy session podcasts, which are themselves inspired by reality television. This Is Dating, part social guide and part controlled experiment, is constructed around virtual blind dates that are arranged, produced, and mediated by producers and a dating coach. Hey. Hello. Hey, how you, how's it going? <laughs> it is going. Uh, nice to meet you, Eric. Nice to meet you, too. <laughs> uh. All right. If it's been a while since you've been on a first date, I'll let you in on something. A lot of them are just like this. Really awkward. They're completely focused on the small talk. They're sitting in the shallow end of the conversational pool. There's questions like, what do you do? Where do you live? How many siblings do you have? People never really get to know each other. They're just exchanging information. So to kind of push them a little deeper into the pool, we've decided to play fairy godmothers to their date. More recently, a new podcast called Being Trans presents a more explicit relationship with its reality TV inspirations. This Fly on the Wall series follows a group of trans individuals as they go about their lives in Los Angeles. Reality TV fans will recognize the use of genre tropes, confessionals, concocted social situations, bouncy background music. And many listeners will respond well to the show's ambitions of normalizing the trans experience. But being trans ultimately feels like a rough draft, even as it yields occasional moments of real human drama. Like this one, where Cy Clark Chan, a non-binary legal assistant, discovers on tape that their partner thinks of himself as straight. First of all, how do you, like, how do you identify? I'm straight. Um, yeah. I'm so sorry. No, no, it's fine. Okay, okay. When Robert answered Jeff's question that he identifies as a straight guy, you know, honestly, it put me into a bit of a spin because fundamentally, regardless of how either of us identify, our relationship is a queer relationship. It was pretty awkward because that's not a conversation that Robert and I have really had. There's a curious gap between this emerging cohort of reality podcasts and the television phenomenon they're inspired by. When we talk about reality television, we're usually not referring to what it looks like, but what it feels like. A show marked by contrivance, and more often than not, the insinuation of mess. We turn to reality not for reality, but for a fantastical reality. That spirit isn't quite present in these podcasts, where the focus is still very much on realism. As a result, it's hard not to come away with the feeling that these are sweet nature documentaries trying to pass themselves off as something sexier. This month, we'll see the release of Welcome to Provincetown, a podcast that follows Misha Kaboli, a documentarian, as she shadows a group of individuals over a summer in Provincetown, the seaside haven for the queer community. Before I'd even arrived in P-Town, I'd heard of Kaya. People were saying that she was going to be the it girl of the summer. 
I remember thinking, what does it mean to be the it girl? One girl? She's gorgeous. <laughs> um, she just puts a lot of effort in, and you can see it. People can see it. People like her. She has the charisma. Well, Kai is a phenomenon that, you know, blasted into town a couple of years ago. And, you know, she appears at just the right moment. Have you seen her perform on Tuesday nights at the club? I met when she first got here. She was good, but she's really perfected her craft and her voice. After living and working in town for nearly a decade, this summer, she's getting her break. It's a naturalistic, contemplative work. One that has more in common with verite-style audio series like Radio Diaries than, say, MTV's Real World. However, that doesn't stop Welcome to Provincetown's distributor from marketing the show as reality television-inspired. It's hard not to be a little frustrated at the tactic, clearly meant to attract fans of reality television who wouldn't ordinarily consider trying out a podcast. But these shows aren't likely served well by the mismatch in association. Let documentaries be documentaries. There's nothing wrong with that. And when the time finally comes for podcasting to actually get its own Real Housewives, let the mess be mess. Nick Kwa is podcast critic for New York Magazine and Vulture. He reviewed the podcasts This Is Dating, Being Trans, and Welcome to Provincetown. On tomorrow's show, A Parable About Partisanship, we talk with Matt Johnson. After writing several novels about race in America, he's written a satirical novel set in the future on a moon of Jupiter in an artificial ecosystem designed to replicate life on Earth. It's also copied some of the worst aspects of America's class system and politics. I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. We had additional engineering help from Al Banks. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, Joel Wolfram, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. <laughs>